With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Richard Jewell finally got what he's been waiting for. A hand-delivered letter from the Justice Department says, based on the evidence developed to date, Jewell is not considered a target of the federal investigation. Here's Richard Jewell, the 114th victim of the Atlanta Olympic bomb. This is the first time I have ever asked you to turn your cameras on me. For 88 days, I lived a nightmare. For 88 days, my mother lived a nightmare too. And it's rushed for the headline that the hero was the bomber. The media cared nothing for my feelings. There was a lot going on in the United States on October 29, 1996. Richard Jewell had finally been cleared as a suspect in the Atlanta Centennial Park bombing after 88 days of hell. O.J. Simpson spent the day in a courtroom, listening to Mark Furman's supervisor attempting to explain just exactly how the disgraced detective found the notorious bloody glove. Over a year had passed since he was acquitted for the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, and now O.J. found himself on trial again, this time for the civil suit brought on by the Goldman family. The 29th of October in 96 was by no means a slow news day. On top of the O.J. civil trial and Jewel finally being cleared, America was exactly one week away from a presidential election. Bill Clinton was riding high after what most people agreed was a successful first four years in office, and he was heavily favored to win re-election against Republican challenger Bob Dole, thanks in some part to Ross Perot's second run for the White House. Perot had siphoned around 20% of the popular vote away from George H.W. Bush in 92, and he was at it again in 96. After a brutal primary season where Dole had been ripped to shreds, mostly by fellow Republican Pat Buchanan, in the final seven days leading up to the election, Dole had resorted to a series of mudslinging, negative campaign ads targeting Clinton. The truth about Clinton on taxes? Remember? I will not raise taxes on the middle class. But he gave the middle class the largest tax increase in history. Higher taxes on your salary, gasoline, social security. Clinton even tried higher taxes on heating your home. 255 proposed tax and fee increases in all. Clinton says. But I don't think that that qualifies me as a Sorry, Mr. Clinton. Actions do speak louder than words. The real Bill Clinton, a real spend and tax liberal. Clinton responded with his Protecting Our Values campaign. It's sad. All Bob Dole offers are negative attacks. President Clinton is fighting drugs, appointing a four star general drug czar. Dole voted against even creating the Office of Drug Czar. President Clinton strengthened school anti drug programs. Dole Gingrich tried to slash him 
President Clinton expanded the death penalty for drug kingpins, now wants drug testing to keep abusers locked up. President Clinton, endorsed by the largest police organization for fighting crime, protecting our values. On that Tuesday morning, Clinton was far ahead in the polls. He would go on a week later to win re-election, defeating Dole in a landslide victory, winning a total of 379 electoral votes. But 71-year-old Maria Catalina Palomino didn't get to see the final outcome of that election. Inside of her southeast Houston apartment at around 9 a.m. on that Tuesday morning, her time on this earth came to an abrupt and brutal end. Welcome to Season 10 of Truth and Justice. This is Episode 1, Catalina. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I began my investigation into Catalina Palomino's murder in the same way that I begin every investigation. And that's with victimology. Victimology is a critical first step when looking into any violent crime. As the name suggests, it's the study of the victim. In any violent crime, a particular victim is chosen by an offender or offenders at a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular reason. Before we even begin to look at a crime scene, it's critically important that we identify any known risk factors for the victim. Basically, we're trying to figure out why an offender would choose this particular person. Risk factors we're looking for cover a wide range of possibilities. Was the victim involved in the drug trade? Do they have a known conflict with someone? Are they part of a hostile love triangle? Are they involved in sex work? Are they going through a messy divorce, etc.? These are just a few examples of risk factors that can help point an investigation in the right direction from the very beginning. And sometimes, studying victimology can reveal that there are no obvious risk factors. And the victim was chosen strictly out of opportunity. It's difficult to really learn anything about Catalina from the case file. Just a name and a photo. I can tell from the crime scene videos and photos, along with a little bit of research, that she was not a wealthy or flashy woman. She lived in a ground floor apartment in a complex that was known for reasonable rent prices. And she drove a late model Honda, which she parked around the corner from her unit amongst a sea of other vehicles. Nothing about the 71-year-old woman living in Unit 57 of the Green Arbor apartment complex would make her stand out as a target. And that's a good start. But it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. We need to get to know Catalina, her history, groups she was involved in, her personality. In order to get this information, I flew to Texas and sought out Catalina's only living relative, her nephew, Juan Fernando Mendiola. I arrived at Juan's house on a cold Monday afternoon. It was 35 degrees in Houston that day. I always seem to manage to bring Michigan weather with me whenever I travel. I rang the doorbell and a petite Hispanic woman answered the door wearing a surgical mask. 
I explained to her, through my own mask, that I was working on a story about Juan's aunt Catalina, and I'd like to talk to him if he's willing. She told me to hang on, and she went to retrieve Juan. A few minutes later, a tall, thin man opened the door. He was dressed in sweatpants and a t-shirt, and was putting on a flannel jacket as he stepped outside. Juan was wearing what looked to be a homemade mask. His thinning gray hair was disheveled. Two things occurred to me in that moment. The Mendiolas are taking this pandemic very seriously. There's no way I was going to be invited inside and out of the cold. And also, that at 72 years old, Juan is now one year older than Catalina was on the day that she was murdered. I told Juan what I was up to and asked if he would be willing to talk to me about his aunt. Well, I can give you some, some background and some info. Would, would you mind if I, if I grab I can even do it right here. Would you mind if I grab some recording equipment and record what you're going to say? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's audio, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's all. If you can give me just a couple of minutes. Thank you so much. I ran to my rental car and grabbed my recording equipment. Juan met me in his driveway, now wearing a hat and gloves, and directed me to follow him to the backyard. We settled into chairs on the patio. It was cold and windy, and most of the furniture was covered with plastic tarps. You'll hear them flapping around in the wind as we speak. A little detail, I guess, uh, from the background of the family is that they moved, uh, my mother and, and her sisters uh-huh. moved from Laredo to here. I brought them over here because I was concerned for their safety as far as they were only living in Laredo by themselves. Uh-huh. So I got them, I said, hey, I got a house, I have a whole bunch of rooms, go on in. So they did, and my mother passed away. Within three or four years. Okay. And at the time, I was single. And my aunt, Catalina, she says, uh, are, you going to re- are you going to marry? I said, uh, yeah, I'm looking at this girl and this and that. And then she says, well, I'll tell you what. I found the apartment right here. And I'm going to move into the other apartment to give you space. Mm-hmm. I said, you don't have to do that. I mean, hey, the house is big enough. But she insisted. She was a very uh, kind of strong woman, shall I say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can get her out of that. But uh, she was a she had her whole community was based on church. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for her, she was very uh, kind of she would open the doors to whoever. Sure. Okay. And she had this. This style of, you know, everybody's a good person. There's no bad persons here. So, and, and that's one of the reasons also I didn't want her to leave. But like I said, she, it's kind of hard to hold somebody down if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. So she moved into an apartment, which is basically about two or two and a half miles from here. Okay. Okay. She found this apartment and for the, uh, for about three or four months since she left here, uh, all the church group was saying she's she's having a wonderful time over there. She has a lot of freedom. She can do whatever she wants to do, you know, invite whoever she wants to invite. And uh, that's what I was told later. Right. Of course, you know, she, she would come and go here anyway. Uh, like I said, not only was she outgoing, she was uh, she was into fundraising. Mm-hmm. She would do fundraisers for the church. She would... Uh, uh, people that were... Uh, sick or that had uh, financial problems mm-hmm. uh, 
they would always try to do something to help them. Okay. Okay. It was uh, it was one of those situations where uh, my uh, my great grandmother was such that she would go to prisons and go visit prisoners. So it kind of rubbed off on both of them. I mean, they right. were kind of a, the you know, hey, people have a better side and and this and that, and so. Uh, she would always, she would always try to try to help other people. Nice. What was it like as having her as your aunt in the house? Absolutely great. Yeah. Uh, she was kind of stern to me. Mm-hmm. While my mother played the motherly side, she played my fatherly side because growing up, uh, you know, hey, uh, my my father passed away in the Korean War, so it was a, uh, I had to basically, the whole family was uh, kind of clung together. Right. And my grandfather, well, he was just too, too old and beyond. Right. So, right. so yeah. Can I show you? I, I was just at the district clerk's office getting copies of um, evidence, and she had a picture in her wallet, and I was wondering. What's that? Your your aunt. Oh, okay. So she she carried this this photo in her wallet. Do you have any idea who that is? Uh, no, that's just uh, she was very religious, mm-hmm. and I have really don't don't know who of all the <laughs> of all those <laughs> the sisters that she know. Right. Uh, was she Catholic? Uh, yeah, yeah, very. Uh-huh. And uh, like I said, she she was uh, from Laredo. She had a whole bunch of uh, of uh, people that they, both my mother and and her were very religious, so, and so the church was everything to them. Right. Did your aunt ever marry, or was she always Mm-mm. single? Uh, well, technically, she was married. Um, when she when she went <laughs> when she went so in her early life, uh, she married, but within a year, the marriage was dissolved. Okay. So it's kind of those situation. Now we're talking. You know, she was probably in her twenties. Okay. When this happened, so it was. Yeah. Now she wasn't a nun herself, right? She was oh, just no. part of the church. No, yeah, she was. She wasn't a nun. She wasn't. Uh, uh, she was religious, but not fanatic, shall I say? Sure. But she was. They they would. Uh, to them, what what happened was to them they the the church was kind of their their extended family, mm-hmm. and so parties or whatnot. You know, she there was always a. Uh, going back, well, myself, I was kind of, yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm not the, I'm not the too religious type, you know. So what can I say? But uh, from her side, yeah. Did you ever have any contact with any of her friends from the church after oh, yeah. she was gone? Oh yeah, a, a lot of them would uh, uh, would talk to me, you know, trying to console me and whatnot on it, and tell me that uh, she really enjoyed her life, uh, her single, you know, her her life out there because she was always. She was. She always lived with her sister, okay. Which was my mother, mm-hmm. okay. And she was a like I say, she was very more outgoing than my mother, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of like my mother would keep her in reins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, after she passed away, that that didn't happen. And like I say, I mean, she she would just open the door to whoever, right? I mean, she was just too trustworthy. So did did you grow up with her living with you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, both my mother and myself, and my grandmother and my grandfather, were all together uh, in Laredo. That's that was my how I grew up. Uh, I only moved to the to this area 
in in my twenties, mm-hmm. and that was because in Laredo the, the job opportunities are right. zero. Sure. So we moved over here to to the refineries and whatnot. I found a job. I went to college, and and then I got into NASA and I got in here. Okay. Oh, you work for NASA? Yeah, I used to work for NASA. Oh, interesting. That's yeah. kind of a, a cool job to have. Uh, yeah, it was. It was <laughs> too bad the pay wasn't too high. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. Then later on, I went to to work at Chase. Well, at that time it was Texas Commerce. It was a banking, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm, I'm in the computers. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's that's where they called me up and said, "Hey, something has happened here." It doesn't appear that Catalina had any obvious risk factors. She wasn't involved with anyone who seemed to pose a threat to her. She was known to be a kind woman, doesn't seem to have any enemies. The months that she spent living at the Green Arbor Apartments almost seemed to parallel a kid moving off to college. For the first time in her entire life, Catalina was living alone. According to those closest to her, she loved it. Juan tells us that he worried that Catalina would open the door to anyone. And yes, that certainly would be a risk factor. But Catalina did not open the door for her killer. We get a little more insight in this newspaper article that ran in the Houston Chronicle on the day after the murder, read by actress Janet Varney. An elderly woman was found beaten and stabbed to death in her southeast Houston apartment Tuesday, just minutes after neighbors heard her screaming. A maintenance worker found the body of Maria Catalina Palomina, 78, about 9.45 a.m. in her ground floor apartment at 10601 Sabo. She has trauma to the head and multiple stab wounds, said homicide detective Wayman Allen. Allen said investigators found evidence that someone had broken into the apartment through patio doors on the front porch. Neighbors who lived above the victim told police they heard screaming coming from her apartment and went down to investigate. The neighbors got no response when they knocked on Palomina's door. They reported this to personnel in the manager's office, and the maintenance worker returned to the apartment and found Palomina on the living room floor. The attack happened in close proximity to the front door. She may have been trying to get out to get help, Alan said. Her purse is on the kitchen table. Whether there's anything missing from the purse, we don't know yet, Alan added. Police found no obvious signs that the apartment had been ransacked. Nevertheless, Alan said, police believe burglary or robbery probably was the motive for the attack. Palomina, who lived alone in the apartment, moved into the complex about six months ago, said her nephew, Juan Mendiola. She did a lot of volunteering and she enjoyed living here because she could bring her friends here and all that, Mendiola said. He said his aunt moved from his house because he recently had married. She wanted to give me more space, he said. Mendiola said Palomina was from Laredo and moved to Houston about 10 years ago. She had no enemies whatsoever. I have no idea what happened here. They tell me nothing is missing. From what I could see through the door, her TV and VCR are still there, he said. As far as money and jewelry are concerned, she didn't have any. It was a brutal attack for nothing. Juan's statement to the Houston Chronicle on the day of Catalina's murder is very telling. She was killed for nothing. She had no enemies and little money. Police believe that the motive was robbery, but as it turned out, Catalina owned very little of value. So why her? Why was Catalina Palomino targeted and killed? Hundreds of people live at the Green Arbor apartment complex. Why choose the elderly woman who has never given anyone any reason to believe that she owned anything of value? That's the first step in our process. We need to figure out why Catalina was chosen as the victim. 
Since it seems no one had a grudge against her, and she didn't stand out as being any wealthier than anyone else in the complex, we're likely dealing with an opportunistic offender, meaning that Catalina may have been targeted for no other reason than she presented an opportunity to the killer or killers. We need to figure out what it could be that made Catalina stand out as a target. In order to do that, you need to know what happened to her. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. First and foremost, in order to understand this crime, you have to understand the crime scene itself. The logistics. The Green Arbor apartment complex is pretty big. It's made up of 19 large two-story apartment buildings. It's located on the corner of Sabo Road and White Clover Drive in southeast Houston. The complex still exists today. However, when I went to the crime scene, I noticed one glaring difference. Security. The entire complex is now surrounded by a 10-foot-tall wrought iron fence. There's a gate at the front entrance that requires a key card to get in. But that wasn't the case in 1996. Back then, anyone could come and go as they pleased, and there was another large apartment complex directly across White Clover Drive. The main driveway into Green Arbor entered the complex off Sabo Road. The driveway winds through the complex, and it is lined with parking spaces on both sides. As you drive in, the main office is on your left. Catalina lived in the third building on the right, in apartment 57. Catalina's building sits perpendicular to the main drive. It's actually boxed in between the driveway and White Clover Drive. Think of a capital H. The two vertical lines on the H are the driveway and White Clover Drive, and the building is the horizontal line between them. In order to get to Catalina's apartment, you would park in one of the spaces on the main drive and then walk down what almost feels like an alley. The buildings are approximately 20 foot apart, and there's a sidewalk in between them. Now, if you're struggling with the mental picture here, there are photos of all this on our website, and I'd highly recommend you check them out because this is important information. Now, when you walk down the sidewalk, you have the windowless backside of one building on your left and the front side of Catalina's building on your right with all the doors and patios. The buildings are all two stories. The doors to the lower units are tucked in behind the stairways to the upper units. Each apartment, both on the ground floor and the second floor, have their own semi-private patios. The second floor balconies are wrapped with wrought iron railings and are situated directly above the lower unit's patios which are wrapped with a four-foot-tall wooden privacy fence. Tall enough to keep the honest honest, but not tall enough to stop anyone from looking right into your apartment. As I said, Catalina lived in Unit 57. It was the second ground-floor unit that you would come to if approaching from the parking spaces. All of this is important 
because her attacker or attackers forced their way into Catalina's apartment through the patio door, not the entry door. Catalina's upstairs neighbor was a 24-year-old woman named Eva Mondragon. Eva will become a critical character in the story as the season progresses. For now, I'll share with you what she testified to at trial. But first, a little backstory leading up to the events of October 29th. Eva lived in apartment 58, directly above Catalina. She was a dancer at a local strip club, and she had a four-year-old daughter who spent some nights with Eva and some nights with her father. On the night of the 28th, Eva's daughter was with her father, and Eva had three guests staying in her apartment. Jennifer Jeffley had just turned 15 years old in September of that year. She should have been a freshman in high school, but due to some tragic family circumstances that we'll get into later, she had been held back a grade. So as a 15-year-old eighth grader in a new city, Jennifer was struggling to find her identity. Life for the Jeffleys had changed drastically over the course of just one year. In 1996, Jennifer's mother Jackie was a struggling single mother trying to balance an immense amount of grief job working for the Texas prison system and raising two teenage daughters, Jennifer and her 16-year-old sister, Kim. As an added challenge to the family dynamic, the Jeffleys were Jehovah's Witnesses, or at least they had been prior to their move, which meant that Jennifer and Kim, at 15 and 16 years old, after moving from the sticks of East Texas to the metropolis of Houston, weren't allowed to have boyfriends. Tensions were high and things came to a head when Kim decided she didn't want to live by their mother's rules and ran away. Even though we weren't Jehovah's Witnesses still, we still lived by those kind of rules. Like, so we weren't supposed to have boyfriends. We still didn't celebrate holidays, even though we weren't like Jehovah's Witnesses and we weren't going to the Kingdom Hall. So, you know, we're 16, I'm 16 years old and, you know, liking boys, you know, and you know, our mom telling us, no, you can't have a boyfriend. You know, just go to school and, you know, you know how parents talk. You know, you don't want to hear that. And we're already going through this depression of mom is not there like she should. We don't know how to handle that situation. You know, we don't have uh, our brothers in our lives anymore. And then, you know, we were the school issue with us missing so many days of school, being held back because we missed so many days, and Houston um, didn't want to allow us to work on staying or helping us to stay in our right grade due to the circumstances that we were in. They just held us back, and that I mean, that was just too hard. I mean, to have to repeat the same kind of the same grade, you're already behind. You're going to this new, you're going to a, a new city that teaches the curriculum is completely different than, you know, how you were doing in this other school. So just all of that, and then on top of that that situation of running away was like more or less something between me and mama, which was the boyfriend thing. I, you know, didn't understand why we couldn't talk to boys. Okay, no boyfriend, but you can't even talk to boys. Like, why can't we? I'm, you know, why can't we talk to boys? Like, I, I could not understand that outside of because I said so. Because you know, you're not supposed to. So that made us upset to where we just felt like, you know, we're just gonna leave, and so we had ran away. So that was with you and Jennifer both. She wanted to be able to talk to boys, and well, me, because I'm the oldest, and so right, it was like 
I'm not going to leave you, Kim, because remember, I told you she's always right there for me. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened in that situation. At this point in their lives, Kim and Jennifer were practically inseparable. So when Kim left home, Jennifer left with her. But they didn't go far. The Jeffleys also lived in the Green Arbor Apartments in Unit 135, just a few buildings away from Catalina and Eva's building. After a couple days of their newfound freedom, Kim decided to go back home. But Jennifer wasn't quite ready. Kimberly and Mama had gotten to it, and I went with Kimberly. And so when Kimberly went home, I didn't go back. So I ended up with Eva. So that's how I ended up there. We kind of, like, bounced around because we were gone for, like, a couple of days. We kind of, like, bounced around, and I ended up at, uh, I, I ended up at Eva. But Kimberly never went to Eva's with me. So that takes us right up to October 28th, the night before Catalina's murder. Kim had returned home, and 15-year-old Jennifer had moved into 24-year-old Eva's apartment. According to Eva, on the night of the 28th, Jennifer's boyfriend stopped by along with his brother. Eva only knows the boyfriend by his nickname, Youngster. She says that she was sleeping on the couch when Youngster and his brother came over. She suggested that they leave, but they ended up sticking around all through the night. Then Eva says that around 7.40 a.m., while sleeping on the couch in her living room, she was awoken by her pager. She checked the number on the screen and decided it wasn't worth going to a payphone to call the person back. The phone in her apartment wasn't working at the time. So she went back to sleep, and then an hour or so later, Jennifer woke her up to tell her that her pager had gone off as well, and she was going to a friend's house to use the phone. In a police statement, Jennifer says that she left the apartment to go to a woman named Janet Dorsey's house to use the phone. She says that on her way out and down the stairs, she saw Catalina out in her apartment tending to her plants. They exchanged hellos and good mornings, and Jennifer went on her way. Now, this is the point where we have multiple conflicting stories about what happened next. So for now, I'm just going to share with you what we know. According to Eva, shortly after Jennifer left the apartment, she was awoken by the sound of screams. She heard someone screaming for help. Youngster and his brother, who were still asleep in the back room, heard the screams as well. Eva says they came out of that back bedroom and asked her if she heard the screams. The three of them then went out onto the stairway. Eva says that she noticed that the screen door on the patio in the unit below her had been ripped off its track and it was, as she described it, dangling. The screams and moans continued from inside the apartment. Eva says that she yelled down, asking if Miss Palomina was okay. She says that a voice called out, I'm okay, I just fell and hit my head. But Eva says that she knew that was not Catalina's voice. It sounded like a man trying to impersonate a woman. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The events of the next five minutes are what shapes the case that we're going to be investigating. Everyone has a different story. So again, for now, we'll just stick to what we know. At some point, Eva runs across the main driveway to the office. She tells the manager there that the woman in the apartment underneath her needs help, that she's screaming for help. She asks them to call the police. Someone makes a call and a maintenance worker and a manager run back to the apartment with Eva. By this time, Jennifer has returned from making her phone call and is standing in the alleyway outside of Catalina's patio with Youngster and his brother. The entry door under the stairs is locked, so the maintenance man jumps over the four-foot-tall wooden privacy fence into Catalina's patio. He enters the apartment and discovers Maria Catalina Palomino murdered inside. The crime scene pictures paint a grisly picture of what happened to Catalina. It looks as though the assault began on the patio. The screen door is bent and off the tracks. A planter has been knocked over, spilling dirt all over the concrete floor and a single slipper lay just outside the doorway, upside down and facing toward the inside of the apartment. A few steps inside, and we find the second slipper, laying on the floor next to a metal flower pot stand and a plastic pot like what you might find around a glass planter to catch the water when you water your plants. Then a 90-degree turn to the right, and about five feet away from the slipper and plastic pot lies the body of Catalina right next to the main door of the apartment. There's dirt and blood all over the floor around her, along with shards of white ceramic. Her attacker or attackers had grabbed the flower pot off the stand that I just mentioned and smashed it over Catalina's head, and then proceeded to stab her multiple times in the chest and back until she stopped screaming. This was a blitz attack. In one moment, Catalina is on the patio tending to her plants, and in a split second, all hell broke loose. Someone jumped over the four-foot-tall wooden fence. Catalina retreated into the apartment and most likely tried to pull the screen door closed behind her. The offender rips the screen door off the track. Catalina takes about three long steps into the apartment where her second slipper falls off, and then she turns right to head for the door that's only five feet away. The offender, chasing behind her, grabs the flower pot and smashes it over her head before she can get the door open. She falls to the floor, then she's stabbed to death. From my estimation, based on a preliminary look at the crime scene, the amount of time that elapsed between when Catalina was tending her plants until she's hit over the head with the planter was probably less than 10 seconds. She had no enemies, no grudges, and very little money. No one planned to rob and kill Catalina. She was a victim of circumstance, a victim of opportunity. She was murdered with her own planter and her own knife, taken right out of her kitchen drawer. Catalina lost her life, and her murderer or murderers 
made off with a wallet and a set of car keys. Within hours of arriving on scene, police almost immediately focused in on a suspect, 15-year-old Jennifer Jeffley. She was 15. She had had just turned, well, October the 30th, 29th, 30th, she had just been 15 a good year, a good month. I'm sorry, not year, a good month, going on two months. I said, where are you? And before she could tell me, the officer took the phone. And he said, um... Okay, Miss Jeffrey, we're getting ready to wrap it up and bring her home. And I'm like, okay, but tell me where you're at. Just let me know where you are. And he said, we're coming. That's fine. You don't have to worry about it. We're coming. And he never would tell me. Big old grin on her face. She was so glad to see me. And she said, you coming to take me home? No. So why? I want to go home, Mom. I said, because the officer charged you with murder, with capital murder. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. 
That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.